Well, I don't know about the way you assess the world and the world in which you live and the office in which you work or the, the, the plant or whatever environment you live in day to day, but it sure seems to me like we have a mixed bag sort of faith in this world today. The mixed bag of so many different beliefs coming together, um, reading just even a, an excerpt of a book this morning. I didn't even, couldn't get much more into it, but, but a book that I'll quote from here in a few moments, but just reading it and just an assessment of our culture and how there are so many diverse views and opinions. And, and so you come to the holiday season, a season that was founded, started in the whole Christmas theme and about Christ and Mass and worshiping Christ at Christmas, and, and yet we have so much now added on to it, so many extras, so many frills, so many things that make up the Christmas season that sometimes it gets kind of convoluted. So when you go in the shops, you hear this debate every year of whether or not you should greet somebody with Merry Christmas or not, season's greetings or not, happy holidays or not. Some of you kind of landed on the happy holiday theme. And the, the issue with the happy holidays is that you don't even realize what you're saying when you're saying happy holidays. That even in saying happy holidays, you are actually giving somebody a religious greeting. They want to you know, listen to the ACLU, I guess, and want to stay away from any religious greeting. They don't want to offend anybody so they have happy holidays. Happy holidays really just means holidays is holy days. So you're just really saying, I hope that your holy days are, are happy days. Uh, and so even that, in this season, we struggle with trying to, trying to dance precariously in this world of, of not wanting to offend one another. And I even heard of this lady one time, I just would like to shake her hand. I don't know, or I don't know, maybe talk to her, pray with her, pray for her, I don't know. But she, she was walking through the mall one time and saw this display. And the nativity scene was there, and right above it, Jesus is the reason for the season. Reason was underlined. And the lady in disgust just said to herself and to anybody that was around listening to her, those Christians are now trying to crowd into Christmas. And I'm thinking, trying to crowd into Christmas. Are we not missing it again that this season is not an add-on thing to the faith, that it's not just an add-on, that it just works out, but we live in a very religious diverse society that's ever growing that way and this is the book i was reading from this morning the culture of disbelief by stephen carter and he said this he said religion is like building model airplanes just a, another hobby something quiet something private something trivial not really a fit activity for intelligent public spirited adults that's the view of the religion of spirituality in some people's minds in this world in which we live. It's, we live, again, in a religious, spiritual, muddled-up mess sometimes whenever we try to mix everything together to try to make everybody happy or, or whenever we try to dumb it down so much that there isn't any Christ overtones in the season. And it even ends up affecting the way we live our lives. And when we come to this time of the year that should be really a renewal of our our faith commitment for as we especially go into a new year that it's kind of a renewal time it actually just kind of exposes who we really are instead of renewing our commitment it exposes our lack of commitment the discontinuity that actually exists the ethics gap as as george gallup the great surveyor 
put it. He said it like this. He said, there is an ethics gap between Americans' expressed belief and the state of society they shape. While religion is highly popular in America, it is too large, uh, to a large extent, superficial. It does not change people's lives to a degree that one would expect from their level of professed faith. What he does is he calls us out. We've got this professed faith of this Savior who came and that we are following Jesus, but does it really line up with our values and really how we live? I really appreciate an email I got this past week from one of our body life group leaders who basically talked about how the radical study has totally changed their life, their perspective, their group. It's created dynamic conversation. It's created some tension that's been healthy. And basically the email says, we don't want to go back. We don't want to, what's next for us? We don't want to just do radical. Let it be this part of a study that we've done and that we just go back to now normal. Again, the whole radical is that this is the new normal. And I appreciate that spirit and that attitude that that's where we want to go. This was not a study that we did and we put it aside. This is a part of who we are becoming. We are truly being changed. There's not an ethics gap between what we profess and what we live. And let's let the Christmas season, if, if, we, if there is that gap there, as there is in so many of our lives, mine included, let's try to close the gap this season. Let's, let's use this Christmas season to kind of merge the two, bring, bring continuity and congruency to our faith and our life and really how it looks out, lives out in, in the day-to-day. I think that in our superpower affluent America, we have kind of in all of the affluence of material, we have also have an affluence of Christianity. And in the affluence of Christianity, it has happened... The same thing has happened in the as has happened in the influence of materialism. We don't appreciate a dollar, and so we don't appreciate a dollar. We spend more than we make, and and we we again as you've heard me say, we we buy things we don't need with money we don't have to impress people we don't like, and that's what we do with all the money that we have out here. And so we don't value a simple dollar. I think because of the influence of the Christian faith, churches on every corner, Bibles in every home. We have Bibles for every affinity out there. We have men's Bibles, women's Bibles, study Bibles. uh, We have religion all around us, but I'm thinking sometimes maybe the affluence of our own religion has actually dumbed us down to where we take it for granted. And again, it's created an ethics gap in our faith and our life. And how how do we come back and bring it all together? I think there's one story that should probably rock us a little bit and rock us in, in again, a good way, create some tension, some disequilibrium inside of us. And that's a story that probably we take for granted again, tell again, again, every year. And we assume that we know it all, but we know it cognitively, but we do not know it experientially. And so what is that story? It's the story of, of what we call three wise men. We don't know there are three or five or ten. Uh, we don't know if there's 20. We, don't, we, we probably figure there's an entourage because these were stately men. These were men who, whenever they come into town on their, on their camels and their donkey carts, that, that they were carrying all this stuff, that they had immediate access to King Herod. So these were not some slacker individuals of the lower caste of society. These were top echelon kind of people. 
So this entourage of, of kingly, stately, wise, magi men that come into, into Jerusalem, or come into, excuse me, into Israel, and they, they meet with the king, and they, they want to see, though, another king. Which kind of throws Herod into a tailspin because he thought he was the king. And all of a sudden they say, no, we want to see the king born of the Jews. The Jewish king. The king who was born there. And we want to meet him. We want to see him. And I had to have thrown Herod into a bit of a, a, a tizzy of, of, of sorts. And so he says, okay. And he begins to inquire and, and really investigate down and press down on these men. And these men say, we'll go find him. And when we find him, we'll send word. That's what Herod's request was. We'll send word for you so you can come and worship him. And then, of course, they get there and things change because they see a vision in the night. They meet the Christ child. And we don't know exactly how old he is. We don't know exactly what his age was because we don't necessarily think that this happens in some kind of chronological order here that he was born on that same night. He's still in the manger scene or, or something like that. He may have been up to two years old. But who are these magi men? Who are these wise men? Well, Zoroastrianism was something that they believed was what these guys believed, which is even still to some degree practiced today in a very small small section. But in that day and age, Zoroastrianism was practiced as a primary faith of Persia. These men were coming from Persia, and it was the dominant faith throughout Mesopotamia during Jesus' birth. So as these who worshipped the stars, who looked at the stars to get guidance in life, these men who were, were astronomers uh, par excellence would map the skies and, and let the stars speak to them as if God was speaking down to them. These were, this was a white-collar faith, by all means. This was not, a, not an uneducated faith. This is where, uh, where legal teams and doctors and philosophers and mathematicians would, would use these stars. And astrology and wizardry and divination comes out of this Zoroastrianism. This is what they believed, that these, these men believed in this time and practiced in this time. And they made a, a long journey. These men did not just come from the other side of the town, other side of the county, other side of the state. These men came from another country. They came from what would be modern-day Iraq. And we don't know exactly how this star... And again, you got to just imagine these men. These men get up every night and they watch the stars. You talk about a night job. They have a night job. And they're mapping the stars out. And all of a sudden, there's a new star that appears. It's not a normal star, but it's brighter than the others. It's, it's moving differently than the others. It's moving from the east to the west. And they see this star and its movement, and, and it captures them. And they begin to lock in on it. And they say, hey, it's not on my charts. Is it on your charts? Nobody on, nobody's charts. We've got to study this star. But this star is moving that direction. So these, these men gather their stuff. And somehow they knew that there was something about this star that made it special. And they were going in this process to worship a long ways off. And we know the story. They show up and they have these strange gifts and and they give these strange gifts. And it's been jokingly said that it was clearly there were three men and not three women. I don't know if you know that. There were three men, not three women, that show up on this day. And, uh, and it's funny when, when I ask, why do you know that so certainly? Because this is what they said. They gave me several reasons. They said, well, one, they would have stopped and asked for, for directions. They wouldn't have gone so long. They would have arrived on time. They would have helped with the early with the delivery. They would have cleaned the stable, made a casserole, and brought practical gifts. 
And so those, that, that's why we know that these were not these were not women. So take your Bibles and let's look at this passage of Scripture in Matthew chapter 2. Again, familiar passage, yes. You will know it, can tell it to your children, blindfolded, with one arm tied behind your back. But here's the point. It's just because we know it, do we really live it. And I hope that we can drill down a little bit today and hopefully know it a little deeper. I'm going to begin reading in verse 1. You follow along, we'll read to verse 12. Now, after Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea in the days of Herod, the king, behold, uh, the king, behold, the wise men from the east came to Jerusalem, saying, Where is he who has been born king of the Jews? For we saw his star. Notice this. They knew the stars. They knew all the stars. But there was something about this star that was so unique and differently. Had they heard the prophecies of old? Had they, had they heard the prophecies that maybe sometime under the ex, uh, exile period when the Jews were actually taken under control of, of the Persian Empire? Maybe, maybe during that time they had heard some of the prophecies of Isaiah. And they had heard during that time that there would be a child and he would be born in Jerusalem. He, or excuse me, he would be born in Bethlehem. And maybe that had been even integrated into their Persian uh, Zoroastrianism. I don't, I don't know, but why is it that they knew so much and they went so far outside of their faith, notice you, outside of their normal traditional faith, they said, this star belongs to somebody. We saw his star, and when it rose and have, and, and, and have come to worship him, and when Herod the king heard this, he was troubled in all Jerusalem with him, and he assembling all the chief priests and the scribes of the people, he inquired of them where the Christ was to be born, and he told them, in Jerusalem, or in Bethlehem, excuse me, of Judea. For so it is written by the prophet, And you, O Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, this is the prophecy of old, And you, O Bethlehem, uh, in the land of Judah, by no means least among the rulers of Judah, for whom you shall come, shall come a ruler, and will shepherd my people Israel. Then Herod summoned the wise men, secretly and ascertained from from them what time the star had appeared and he sent to them and he sent them to Bethlehem saying go and search diligently for the child and when you this is Herod speaking here and when you have found him bring me word that i too may come and worship him after listening to the king they, they went on their way, and behold, the star that they had seen when it arose went before them until they came to rest over the place where the child was. And when they saw the star, they rejoiced exceeding with great joy. And going into the house, they saw the child with Mary and mother, and they fell down and they worshipped him. Then opening their treasures, they offered him gifts, gold, frankincense, and myrrh. And being warned in a dream not to return to Herod, they departed to their own country by another way. As you look at this passage, again, a familiar passage, what is it about these wise men, these wealthy men, that would drive them across lands and deserts and, and desolate land? What, what is it that would drive them? To be in such pursuit of something. 
that they would name the star his star, that they would follow the star. What was the star? Was it some astronomical uh, asteroid that flew through the sky and they followed it? I don't think so at all. I think it was absolutely, and many scholars believe this, it was the Shekinah glory of God, the very light that carried the people of Israel through the wilderness, cloud by day, fire by night, manifest itself in a Shekinah, in a star-like form, creating the appearance of a star, an, an amazing star that would actually guide these astronomers. And I come back to a statement I said last week. All roads do not lead to God, but many roads do lead to Jesus. Even though these men were far, far from worshiping the Yahweh God of the Old Testament, they were worshiping the stars, God even used their spirituality, God even used their wisdom, God even used their, their, their experience in education and their philosophies and mathematical skills. He used all of that to somehow channel them to follow Him. And it brings me to, I guess, at least three demonstrations that I see in this passage. Three demonstrations, I think, of what the wise and the wealthy believe about Jesus. One of those things is that we cannot miss about this is that the wise and wealthy seek Jesus. They seek Him. There's a desire deep inside of them. I, I, I believe with all my heart that inside of every single person on the earth for all time, there's always been a desire to know God. Now, the Bible says no man seeks after God. All right. At the same time, there's clear evidence that we are spiritual people longing for a connection with God. And God calls us to seek for Him. He calls us in Jeremiah chapter 29, verse 13. He says, you will seek me and find me when you seek me with all your heart. I, I just want to bring it to the table today, and I just want to ask you, if I was face-to-face -face with you right now, and we were able to just talk one-on-one, -on -one, and I would say to you, ask you this question, are you seeking God? Are you really in all of your heart and life and energy and time and monies and ambitions, are you seeking God? What does that look like? What does that feel like? What's the demonstration of a person who's seeking God? I mean, the Bible says you'll find Him if you search for me with all your heart. What does it mean then when we live in this world of, uh, 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 of so much other stuff? Some people say, I prayed and God didn't answer, so I gave up on Him. Or my fam family became sick or I lost my job and, and this happened and that happened. I just got mad at God and walked away and I understand those emotions. They're real what does it mean to seek God? Do you, you seek Him when it's convenient? Do you seek Him when there's pleasure involved? But what about when it's tough? What about when you have to trek across a desert like these wise men did? What about whenever you have to leave comforts of, of Persia and go to a foreign land? What, what about that? Does that mean you're... Are we willing to go that far with Him? It's interesting. A, a study that was done by Ohio University and, and, and Scripps Howard... Of 1,001 people in October, a couple years back, it said that more Americans will set up Christmas trees this year than will attend a worship service on Christmas Eve or Christmas Day. What is it about Christmas that it just kind of becomes an add-on? We will seek a tree more than we will seek a Savior. What does it mean to seek? What does it mean to seek Jesus? Here's a couple of 
thoughts just to jot down in, 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 your, own, in your own mind. One is they sought Jesus beyond their lazy boys. All right? It's really convenient whenever you don't have to go very far to seek Jesus. Whenever Grace Point's your first church along the highway and you can just pull in here and it's all convenient. You come early and there's plenty of parking and there's place for your children in the preschool. And so there's space. It's convenient. We like convenience. But I want us to remember these men who were not God followers, they were astronomers. They were seeking stars, but they were trying to connect with God. They were trying to, they were, the connection with God wasn't exactly there, but they would track across lands of desolation to find God. How much are we stepping outside of our comfort zone? It would be like for us today, if you want to imagine how far these people traveled by, by camel, most likely. How far they traveled in their caravan, in their entourage. It would be like us today setting out on a journey from northwest Arkansas to Mexico City on camel. You talk about some bow-legged magi when they got there. I mean, that's exactly how far it would be for us. On camel to try to find, follow this star, to meet this instigator of this star, who they didn't even have a name for, but yet they so desperately wanted him. They so desperately wanted to connect with him. From here to Mexico City, can you imagine? On camel, over time, over temperatures, through the elements, in the night. No Holiday Inn Express on that trip. All right, it was a tough, grueling, adventuresome trip. This Christmas season, how will you ramp up your seeking Jesus Christ? used to be the banner, the bumper sticker that said, wise men still seek him. Is that true of your life? Is that true that you are a seeking individual? Again, another study uh, done by Americans by Strategy One Poll asking a thousand adults what, they, what their favorite thing to do at Christmas time was. Their favorite thing about Christmas season and things to do, activities to do at Christmas time. This is what they said. Number one, celebrating family traditions, 48% of them. That's a pretty good one. I like that. I enjoyed that. Number two, cooking and baking. I like the eating part. 35% said that part. That was their favorite thing to do at Christmas time. Three, giving and receiving of gifts, 24%. Number four, renewing spirituality, 21%. Shopping, 20%. Decorating, 19%. Is that not ever something? Interesting study. That somehow in their cooking and eating and family traditions, those are all good. Giving and receiving gifts, those are all good. But why not? Why not in this Christmas season would, would renewing my commitment to Him? Because we seek God from our lazy boys. When it's convenient. We, when we like it when, we, when it, when it's, when it's conducive to our lifestyle. Guys, I want us to get past this. I want us to get serious about seeking Him. And what will that take? Number two, I think if you're going to seek Him like the wise men, it's being sensitive to the direction of God. Not only did they meet Jesus at that time, in that period, they worshipped Jesus and they took their gifts to Jesus, but I want you to notice the sensitivity that they had. That when God was working and God was speaking, they, they responded with sensitivity. And you look down in verse 12 and notice this, that they were planning on going back to Herod. They were planning on, I think that verse is going to be up here in just a moment. 
But uh, here it is, verse 12. And being warned in a dream not to return to Herod, they departed to their own country by another way. What was it? They, 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 they went beyond, out of their way. They, they, could, they were supposed to go back to Herod, but they didn't go back to Herod. See, what they, they, they got into the mode. Listen to this very carefully. When God spoke, they obeyed. When God's Spirit was leading by, by, by the Shekinah glory of God through the desert, no matter how difficult it was, they went. How uncomfortable it was, they went. There was something about it. That they, that they were responsive in obedience to God, that when God spoke, he, they listened. It wasn't a debate. It wasn't, hey, we've got to go back and meet with Herod again. No, it was God said, don't go back there. In a dream, it said, don't go back there, so they did not go back there. There was an element of sensitivity. Henry Blackaby, this is one of my favorite statements, again, by Henry Blackaby, again, in Experiencing God, he said, he said, you go with God. You cannot go with God and stay where you are. You cannot go with God and stay where you are. There has to be an element of movement in your life. Where is God moving you? It's not a stay still. It's not find comfort. It's not find... It's, it's being willing to move. See, seeking God is one thing. Going with God is, is right in line with that. Where is He moving? How is He moving you? One of the times that God moved me was whenever He took me to the Ukraine in 1993. I was nowhere interested in missions, I'll promise you that. But God moved me on that day. We were in Shatomer, Ukraine, which is just east of, uh, of Kiev. It was two years after the fall of communism. We were literally going from school to school to school, speaking in schools, nursing, legal firms, hospitals. We were speaking anywhere, anywhere anybody would open the door to us. And really what it came down to is everybody was opening up their door to us, allowing us to come in and to speak. Whatever about our faith, whatever. I mean, communism had fallen. The, the coupon is what their currency was at that time. was worthless. Their life was in shambles. And they, everything that they had been taught to believe in was gone. Communism was gone. It was all gone. It was really kind of the turning epic moment in the world well, throughout uh, communistic uh, thinking. Marxist communism, anyway. And so what happened is these people were like, where's the hope? Where's the direction? So we, went, we were going to these schools and we would speak, but we only had like 30 minutes and we could only speak once and tell our story about Christ and then we'd have to go on to the next school because they were waiting for us there. And I can remember going into this one school and we all just divided up with our translators, went into these different classrooms and I spoke in this one classroom and these other students were just standing outside. They couldn't fit any more in there. And I spoke and a number of the of the students immediately became followers of Christ and wanted to know more. And so I told them what I could, but then the, the bus driver was pulling me out. And so I, I went out with the bus driver, looking back, talking to them as I'm going, and I get on the bus. And I can remember one guy actually literally reached up and grabbed a hold of me and wouldn't let the door. And he said, I want to hear the story you just told. He was not one of the kids in the classroom. He was not, uh, they were college students. He was not one of the college students in the classroom. And he physically grabbed a hold of me and wanted to hear that story. And I tell you, to this day, I can see that young man. And I can tell you on this day, that was that day that God began to rock my world for the world. And I came back to America a totally different person. And since 1993, and that was in March of 1993, I have had a heart for the world and it won't go away. And I, I say that to say that whenever we get serious about seeking God, 
He will change our direction. He will move us in ways that maybe we're not even comfortable about moving. We will have to get out of our lazy boys. But we will live a different life. Are you doing that? Number two, the wise and the wealthy worship Jesus. You can't miss this. This is their intent. This is why they traveled the whole way. It wasn't what they, and now notice this, it wasn't what they were going to receive from Jesus. It was what they wanted to give this child, this king of the Jews that has been born. That's that. That's what they want to give. Verse 2, the last part of verse 2, he says, uh, he says, for we saw his star and we rose and have come to worship him. In verse 11, it says, in, in, going from how, uh, in going into the house, they saw the child and with Mary, his mother, notice what they did, they fell down and they worshiped him. What is it about worship? Worship, can, for some of us, becomes such an entertainment. You know, how's the band going to do it today? And is there going to be a drama or an interpretive dance today? Or what is it going to be about today's worship that I'm going to like? Or what, what, how can I critique it? I didn't like that rendition of old, Holy Night. I like the old tradition. Or I don't like the old. I like something new and peppy. We kind of get into this kind of mentality. I like that. I don't like that. And that becomes our style of worship. Instead of saying, this is what I am bringing to this worship conversation. This is what I'm bringing to the table. Soren Kierkegaard, one of the philosophers of old, said this. He said that many times we have turned it into this kind of performance where there's dramas and actors and directors. And that God is the director. The worship team are the actors. And the real performers are the congregation. That's what it's supposed to be. God is directing our worship. The team up here, they're the ones that are putting it together. What we need to be are the, are the, are the real worshipers in this room today. Jesus is not a sight to see. He's a Savior to be worshipped. How are you worshipping Him today? How are you bringing your worship to Him this season? I like what Chuck Swindoll said. He said, worship is God, uh, of God anoints our days and causes our dry cups to be full. How is your cup overflowing? How is your worship being manifest today? When you look at the Revelation and you study where we are going at the end of all time, we see that we are heading to a place of worship. We'll spend all eternity worshiping. Revelation 4.11, You are worthy, O Lord, our God, to receive glory and honor and power. Revelation 5.12, Worthy is the Lamb who was slain to receive power and wealth and wisdom and strength and honor and and glory and praise. These wise men traveled across desert, barren land to do one thing. To bring worship. If we don't understand what worship is. We, we will not understand what heaven's going to be about. We will not. It, and the thing is, it's really hard to worship the abstract. It's really hard to worship something that you don't really know. And you will not know God until you seek God. But when you seek Him, you will find Him when you search for Him with all your heart. We just read that. Seeking becomes real, uh, worshiping becomes a lot easier when there's a whole lot of seeking that precedes it. If there's no seeking, there won't be a love relationship. If there's not a love relationship, there can't be worship. All we then turn into are the consumers 
of worship. All of heaven will be about worshiping Him. We better figure this part out, my friend, or eternity is an awful long time. Number three, if you're looking at the wise and wealthy and what they do and believe about Jesus, is I want you to also notice that the wise and the wealthy, they gave to Jesus. They didn't come empty-handed. They came with a bent knee. They came with a worshipful heart. They came seeking God. Do you see something happening in these Zoroastronomists? I mean, these people, they got it. They got it. They, were, they had a hot heart for God. They would go across lands that were, that were barren. They would seek Him. They would fall down and worship Him. There was something that was different than that I think we've got it all reversed. And so when it comes to the conversation of giving, we get real uncomfortable. It gets real, I don't know about that. We start justifying in our minds. We start reducing down as much as we can. We start eliminating the concept. We start rationalizing it out. When it comes to these guys, these magi coming from afar, they brought a treasure chest, mind you, to God. Verse 11. It says, And they fell down and they worshipped Him. Then opening their treasures... Opening their treasures, they offered gifts of gold, frankincense, and myrrh. What did they load up before they left Persia? What did they put in this treasure chest? What did they did they know where they were going? There's a whole lot we don't know of what they did know or what they didn't know. But somehow they knew that this star that was going to this special place, going from east to west, not west to east, they, they knew that this was going something special and unique. And so when they loaded up, they loaded up ready to worship whoever they went to. And notice it was more than just that they wanted to go pay homage to another king in a neighboring country. They knew that this was something more than just a neighboring goodwill gesture to a, to a, fellow, to a fellow nation. They were worshiping the king of kings. And when they worshiped the king of kings, they didn't hold anything back. Even if you look in the, in the scriptures and you'll find when David was, had an opportunity that he could have worshiped and then he could have given gifts to God that he didn't own and they weren't from him. You know what he said in 2 Samuel chapter 24, verse 24? Is I will not offer to the Lord my uh, my God sacrifices that have cost me nothing. I'm not going to give it if it didn't cost me something. See, worship is costly. And we'd like to think worship is entertaining or worship is good or worship is bad. We have this kind of meter scale. But really what worship is, real worship is, it's costly. What does worship cost you today? What's it costing you this moment? As you're here, notice what these guys brought. They brought gold, frankincense, and myrrh. What's all that about? Well, I think there's been a great connection made about this. The gold represents the royalty of Jesus. You would think of a gold crown. You would think of jewels. You would think of lots of things that would represent the royalty. But gold, the highest of all valuable metals in the world. For years and years and years, gold has represented the royalty of Jesus. Jesus was the king. But it also represented, there was frankincense. Frankincense represented the deity of Jesus. It spoke to his deity. Now whether or not they knew all of this, I don't know. 
but it was so appropriate that the gifts that they were given, you think, Mike, what's frankincense? Frankincense was a special oil that was used in Old Testament worship. You can look it up in Leviticus chapter 2, verse 2, and you can find where frankincense was, in, was a, a very costly oil that was used in worship to God. Their declaration on that day is that Jesus, you are the King. Jesus, you are the God. But also, they gave myrrh. What does myrrh represent? The death of Jesus. Myrrh was used. Again, what a strange gift to give. It's one of those gifts that you'd like to pass on, re-gift, or something like that. But actually, myrrh represents something that you would do when you're embalming a body. They would use that to embalm bodies in the, in, in the days of old. Now, what, what's all that about? Jesus came not just to live, not just to be a good example, but he came to die. What an amazing gift that they gave. Whether they fully knew and understood, I don't know. To what extent, I don't know. But here's some things about their gifts. Their gifts were costly, timely, personal, and meaningful. Think about that. Write it down. Their gifts were costly, timely, personal, and meaningful. Costly, timely, personal, and meaningful. Their gifts represented who Jesus was. I would hope that in this Christmas season that you will make space in your life, space in your budget, space in your time, space in everything, that you would now make room to seek Him. And make that your number one priority this season. And as you seek Him, you will find Him when you search for Him with all your heart. And when you find Him, you will know Him. And when you know Him, you will want to worship Him. If you don't know Him, you will not want to worship Him. When you know Him, you will want to worship Him. And when you worship Him, you will not come empty-handed, looking up, waiting to be entertained, to consume worship. You will come with things that are meaningful, things that are costly, things that are timely. I want to tell you today that, that we have an opportunity at, at Christmas time. We started it last year, and I'm excited about doing it again this year. On Christmas Eve night, we'll come together and we will we will give gifts. We will worship. We will have a candlelight service. It'll be a time that all the families will be here. We'll not have child care. You just bring your children in, and we'll celebrate and share together for about 45, 50 minutes. But on that night also, we'll take an offering. That offering every, well, last year and then this year, does not go to our ministry budget, does not keep the lights on, keep the, keep the, warm roo, the, the room warm for you when you get here. It is not going to be about that. It's not going to be about even buying crayons or teaching material for our own children. Everything about our Christmas offering will go outside. Believe us. And we will give it away. And we'll give it away in several directions. Here's one of the ways that this year's Christmas offering will go. It will go to help the Hall family. Go, as they, as you know from our church, our first live field representatives leaving our church, going, going to a, an undisclosed location in South Asia to serve and live and work, and we're excited about that. And they are raising their funds right now, and we're supporting them week by week through your weekly giving. But then there's this huge amount that they have to have to get there, to get house lights turned on, to get set up and get going, just to get going. And we're, we're going we're gonna to give a third of our offering that comes in 
this Christmas to get them there. We're going to give a third of it to something that we value here, and that's Northwest Arkansas and, and our church planning and our community development through Hope in Action and Hope in Action Days or through Hope in WA or different things like that. And all of it just goes 100% in, back into the community. Also, last year it, it helped start Grace Point Rogers. And so you've, you've got some elements there that we're just going to pour, take it right back in and just pour it right back into the community, keeping none of it here inside this building or the ministries inside this building. But another thing it will also go to, because we have 11 different, excuse me, 12 different teams going out around the world this year. We're going to take a, we're going to take a third of that. We're actually going to set up a scholarship fund for all of our volunteer global adventure workers who are going around the world. We have never been able to do this on, on, on a global scale, but we don't know how much will come in. But we're just going to take that and make sure that's divided up in a very fair, equitable uh, amount to, to each of those teams so those teams can give out scholarships to those who are able to go. But you know what? It's not about, it's not about giving to a scholarship fund. It's not about helping the halls. It's not about even helping your own community develop. It's not about that. You know what it's really about? It's about worship. And so please don't bring a gift to that. Bring a gift to worship. And please don't bring a gift to worship until first you have spent serious amounts of time seeking Him. Make this season about giving to Him. Giving your life, giving your time, giving your resources to Him. Let's sing this song together.